Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I'm somebody who believes the blame lies more at the feet of responsible Republican elected officials in Congress than it does at the president's feet. Because there have been many moments over the last four years that Republicans could have spoken up and said, no, that's just not true. That's Claire McCaskill. She's a former Democratic senator from Missouri and a political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. After serving two terms in the Senate, McCaskill lost in 2018 to Josh Hawley, who we've all come to know as a central figure leading up to last Wednesday's insurrection attempt. Today, we discuss who is to blame for the attack on the Capitol, the Democrats' impeachment strategy, and the state of play in the U.S. Senate. And before we dive in, I have some exciting news. You can now listen to the trailer for our new podcast, Doing Justice, based on my New York Times bestseller of the same name. Subscribe to Doing Justice now, wherever you get your podcasts to get a first look or listen. I can't wait for you to hear it. My interview with Senator McCaskill is coming up. Stay tuned. This past Tuesday, the afternoon of January 12th, Department of Justice officials finally held an official press conference relating to activities from the insurrection attempt on January 6th. And a lot of people have observed the same thing and asked a question. Here's Susan Hennessy, former Stay Tuned guest in a tweet who writes, quote, It is just insane that the FBI director, deputy FBI director, and acting AG aren't giving this presser, close quote. And Shauna, 5038277 asks, what are your thoughts here, Preet? Any theories, significance? Hashtag ask Preet. So in case you missed it, the press conference was conducted by the acting U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia, Michael Sherwin, and an FBI assistant director out of Washington, Stephen Dantuono. And I had the same reaction that Susan had as I was watching. I will tell you that in my experience, when you have something of this national significance, with this scale, this scope, that is the basis not only of maybe dozens and dozens of criminal charges all throughout the United States, but also the basis of the first in history, second impeachment of a sitting president of the United States. It's usually the case that the leaders of the relevant organizations stand with the U.S. attorney and others to make announcements, to answer questions. I will tell you that anytime we had a case of this significance, even though sometimes local U.S. attorneys chafe at it, Eric Holder or Loretta Lynch or Bob Mueller or Jim Comey would be standing there to show how important it was to the federal government. I think it's really weird, I agree, that those folks weren't there, neither acting Attorney General Jeff Rosen or FBI Director Chris Wray, especially since we went six days without hearing any official word from anyone. People had to piece together what happened and make predictions about what was going to happen based on press reports, sometimes from anonymous sources and looking at clips on social media. And it's also weird, if you stayed up late, you might have seen that acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen posted a, a slightly bizarre video on YouTube talking about the events of January 6th. And one more thing on top of all that, the press conference was in the District of Columbia. That's where Jeffrey Rosen is. That's where Chris Ray is. So I don't know what was going on there. It sends an odd message. I mean, I thought that the two officials who briefed the public did a good job. I think there were some very interesting things, especially that the U.S. Attorney, Michael Sherwin, said he said, among other things, people are going to be shocked at the charges that are brought. He said that there are about 170 open cases at this moment, and the numbers will, quote, geometrically increase, end quote, and that this is only the beginning. So they were making a big show of force about how this is going to take some time. It is going to be far-reaching. The charges will range from misdemeanors all the way up to felony murder, which was interesting to me, perhaps, and seditious conspiracy. So... There's a disconnect between the silence of six days and then a press conference at which lesser officials were briefing the public 
but in a tone and with content that suggested a deep commitment to bringing maybe perhaps hundreds of people to justice. So make what you will of that. Two other comments about the FBI and DOJ. One is we learned new details about how actually successful the FBI was in transmitting intel information to local authorities in D.C. and disrupting travel on the part of some of the worst actors who were coming to D.C. on January 6th. There was the arrest of the Proud Boys guy, and they talked about the disruption of other people who were probably among the more violent people coming. And even though they did those things, we still had that massive insurrection at the Capitol. The point of which is, as bad as it was, it could have been even worse. Another question arises as to how difficult it's going to be to hold people accountable in connection with January 6th. And on that, I have, I guess, a couple of observations. On the negative side, obviously there will be challenges because time has passed. People have fled the scene who are accountable. Evidence is able to be destroyed. Communications are able to be destroyed. And one benefit that you sometimes get from an immediate real-time on-site arrest is the possibility of incriminating statements made by people who will admit who they talked to and what they said and what their intentions were. All of those things make it easier to prosecute no matter what the criminal charge is. On the other hand, a lot of these folks were not only unafraid, but downright proud of what they were doing. And they posted video of themselves. And there's a lot of video that got taken. And you have a lot of witnesses because it was done out in the public and in the open. It just is very difficult at the end of the day to track down every single person who's engaging in violence and insurrection on that day. Some people have asked questions about what some of the more serious charges that are available to be brought against the rioters. For example, Twitter user KG D'Angelo says, you're an Ann Milgram's thoughts on viability of sedition charges and or felony murder. Hashtag ask Preet. Now with respect to felony murder, I think that's an uphill battle. Felony murder is the principle at law under which someone can be liable for the death of someone while not intending to kill that person, but while committing some other serious felony. And in the process of committing that serious felony, if it was foreseeable that someone could die in the process, that's felony murder. But the underlying serious felony has to be enumerated in the statute. So for example, felony murder is available if during a botched robbery, someone dies, or during a rape, someone dies. And it's not clear to me, and I haven't studied it very deeply, that there's an available predicate felony that these rioters could be charged with that would result in a felony murder charge. Although Michael Sherman yesterday, the acting U.S. attorney, did mention felony murder in connection with possession of explosives. So I will look at that more carefully, but I think felony murder is not going to be available for too many people if it's available for anyone at all. On the other hand, seditious conspiracy is a charge that's not often brought. It's a serious charge, but it looks like it contemplates exactly what lots of folks did on January 6th. Let me quote from the statute. It's 18 United States Code 2384, which says in part, if two or more persons in any state or territory conspire to overthrow, put down, or to destroy by force the government of the United States, or, this is the important part, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States, contrary to the authority thereof, etc., etc., you're subject to imprisonment of not more than 20 years. Now, I didn't have occasion to prosecute or oversee the prosecution of seditious conspiracy. Didn't happen a lot in the Southern District. It doesn't happen a lot generally. But if you look at the language of the statute, it seems that the violent mob was trying to do exactly what's contemplated in the statute, and that is to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution, not just of any law of the United States, but a central, core, constitutional function, and that is the counting of the ballots of the 2020 presidential election. It's a solemn, constitutional function set forth in our most important organizational document, and a lot of these folks came to the Capitol for the express purpose of stopping that. So unless I'm missing something, I think seditious conspiracy will be available for a number of people. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day 
to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. My guest this week is Claire McCaskill. She's a former U.S. Senator from Missouri and now a political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. McCaskill's won a number of hard-fought campaigns in deep red Missouri, and over the years, she's developed a reputation for speaking her mind. McCaskill joins me today for a candid conversation about last week's insurrection attempt at the Capitol, how Joe Biden should approach his first 100 days in office, and the lessons she's learned from a life in politics. Senator Claire McCaskill, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. So I I have a lot of things to discuss with you, given what's happened in the last week in our nation's capital. But I want to begin with a personal story, which you will have no recollection of. But since I have you, I'd like to mention it. So back in 2006, I was working in the Senate. I was chief counsel to Senator Schumer. He was head of the DSCC. He recruited you and others to run for Senate. And we'll get into that later. The 2006 race, you won in Missouri. And then the following year, I helped to oversee an investigation into the firing of U.S. attorneys. And I'll never forget, as a you know fairly young staffer, I got a message that Senator McCaskill called and wanted to speak with me. And I thought, well, of course, Senator McCaskill didn't call because senators don't call staffers. I can't call her back. So I, I didn't even want to call back your chief of staff because I thought that was too high ranking. So I called your LD, your legislative director, I said, hi, it's Preet Bharara returning the call. Someone from your office wanted to speak with me. And she said, oh, yeah, Senator McCaskill wants to speak with you. Hold on a second. And then she put you on the phone. I don't people appreciate that is not so common for the senators in that body to talk directly to a staffer. And so I just wanted you to know it's a small thing, but I was thrilled that you took the time to ask me your question directly. And we had a nice little chat. Well, Preet, that's a great story. And I I just got (laughs) to say that if I'm going to give a tip to anyone who is serving in government, know that the power is with good staff. (laughs) With the staff. And if you can find the right staff person that has the portfolio of the policy issues you're working on, you will skip a lot of steps and get a lot more done going directly to that staff person. (laughs) You know, it was early. It was the middle of my tenure there. And I can count on one hand. I mean, Chuck Schumer used to do this. He would talk to staff all the time, and I think it's smart. Uh, But I can on one hand the number of times that a sitting senator chose to speak to me directly as opposed to passing a question through the member. And so I'll tell you, you know who the other people were that I can remember? Sheldon Whitehouse and our erstwhile friend, Lindsey Graham. Well, there you go. Two out of three ain't bad. (laughs) Uh, So we're recording this on Tuesday, January 12th. And who knows what God all things will happen in the next couple of days. My first question to you is, what is the emotional state of your former colleagues after the violent insurrection on the Capitol last week? And I'm sure you're talking to some of them. How are they feeling, not as legislators first and foremost, but as, as people? You know, Preet, I would describe, and I would say this on a bipartisan basis, shaken you know, certainly on the Democratic side, determined. You know, when, you, when you're dealing with United States senators, most of them know their way around politics, particularly in their own state. But there's no question that all of my former colleagues are really, I believe, of the belief that they're in uncharted waters to some extent in terms of politics, especially my Republican friends, because they are really in a vice grip right now between knowing the right thing to do and knowing the dangerous political waters they will be treading in if they do the right thing. You said an interesting phrase a second ago that some people might be surprised to have heard. You said Republican friends. How is it that you have Republican friends? Can you explain that to the public? 
Yeah, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that the members of the Senate are friendly with each other and are personal friends. Now, I can't say that for all of the senators. <laughs> I was going to mention a couple that maybe you can't say that about. No, no. That, certainly there are some that are, you know, so porcupine-esque that you don't approach or even try to strike up a personal relationship with. But I spent a lot of time working across the aisle. I thought it was important that we get things done. And frankly, you have to work across the aisle to get things done that last, that aren't fleeting. I think you're going to witness that over the next couple of years with the tax law. You know, that was not bipartisan. And it, it's, it, I don't think many parts of that will last because of it. So um, I, I, you know, when you work with people across the aisle, then you become friends and you continue to visit with them. Uh, I hope I remain friends with many of them until the day I die. How big a deal in the history of the country were the events of January 6th? A very big deal. Um, and it will become, I think, stark in the relief of time. I think it will, um, books will be written about it. Courses will be taught about, I think, this era in American politics and how it went off the path of normal. Uh, and certainly the culmination of that will be what happened, especially now, Preet, that we're in such a visual communication world. Uh, those videos are on now on people's hard drives. They're never going to go away. People are always going to remember those images. And I think it is going to, hopefully, will be a cautionary tale. Hopefully, we'll learn from it. But there's no question this, this was a big day in American history. Who's, who's mostly to blame for it? Well, I'm somebody who believes the blame lies more at the feet of responsible Republican elected officials in Congress than it does at the president's feet. Because there have been many moments over the last four years that Republicans could have spoken up and said, no, that's just not true. No, no, that's not true either. Uh, no, um, you, you, we're not going to have a rigged election just because Donald Trump is afraid of losing. And ultimately, they painted themselves into a corner where they accepted either by embracing or ignoring the big lie, which was somehow this election wasn't free and fair. And that is the lie that does the permanent damage. And so I put just as much blame at the feet of Republican elected officials as I do at the feet of the liar in chief. You tweeted just a few hours ago, I saw right before we started taping, we should all memorize the eight senators who voted for the big lie after death and destruction in the Capitol. And then you list them, uh, Hawley, Cruz, Marshall, Loomis, Hyde Smith, Kennedy, Scott, meaning Rick Scott, and you wrote some former football coach from Auburn. <laughs> what should people do about those senators? Remember who they are. Remember what that says about them and how they um, are willing to absolutely embrace something that they know, especially if you look at the leaders of the pack. Holly and Cruz, I, I don't need to explain to you the kind of legal education that those two men had. Yeah, they all got into schools I didn't get into. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, one Harvard, one Yale. Holly clerked for Chief Justice Roberts. And as a side note, when some of the crazy stuff was being said by the president's lawyer, Lynn Wood, about Chief Justice Roberts, Holly never even defended him, which is startling in how craven that is and how willing he is to set aside what is normal human behavior under the, under the auspices of loyalty to a Supreme Court justice that you clerked for, uh, how willing he was to abandon that in order to pursue his ambition to get a foothold into the Trump base for his future aspirations. So th those two guys know better. They know that the Trump's lawyers had all of the quote-unquote evidence of fraud. They know they had an opportunity to present it in various ways, in various forms, in courts across this country, both state and federal. 
They know that it was soundly rejected as unreliable, as rumors, as not relevant, or as not material. And instead of embracing the courts and the decision that the courts made, I think there was the, the, the tally is one in 64 in terms of one wins yeah. and losses for the Trump team in court. Instead of embracing the courts, which both of them should have considering their background, they decided to ignore that in another brutal blow to our democracy because that's a gut punch to our judiciary. So shame on the two of them. And yeah. I, I mean, I hope both of them have huge problems in the future. I'm afraid Holly won't in Missouri. I can't speak for Cruz in Texas, but I imagine both of them now have a toehold on the national stage they didn't have before. You know, you mentioned that Holly and Cruz know better. They're members of the bar, highly educated lawyers, clerked at the highest levels. Does Trump know better? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Let the record reflect that the senator has sighed. Yeah. Um, because I have, I struggle with that too. And I sometimes worry, just as preface, I sometimes worry that when we say things like he's dumb or he doesn't know better or he's blinded, we let him off the hook. And I think he's a much more intentional actor than we sometimes give him credit for. And I don't feel like he should be let off the hook. Yeah, I agree with you. you. I don't think he's dumb. I think he is a master manipulator He's a marketer at his core, you know, kind of a huckster, the guy who could come into town and sell stuff and then get out of town when people figured out it didn't work. But I do think he has a form of mental illness in terms of the level of narcissi narcissistic behavior that, that, he is, that he displays on a constant basis. You know, I have known people who were such degenerate liars that they lost track of whether they were lying or not. And he may go in that category, such a complete liar that he loses track of where the truth actually is. Now, you know, I don't want to give him any credit for anything. He's been, I think, um, the worst president in our country's history for a lot of reasons. But I, I think he's in a different category than than uh, than both Holly and, and Cruz. But both of them are bad. <laughs> you did. You didn't. So, in the, your list of eight senators, I, I understand how you made the list based on how they voted and the objections they raised. Where do you where do you place the current, still majority leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, on the spectrum of contributing to the crisis, enabling the president, etc.? Well, he is one of the people that decided it was in the best interest of his political power to play along to the extent that he needed to for the entire Trump presidency. Now, I will give a small smidgen of credit to McConnell for drawing the line, and he did draw a bright line. I mean, make no mistake about it, he worked very hard to keep Republicans in the Senate from doing what Josh Hawley did. And he pulled it off until Hawley broke. So you give him a smidgen. He gets a smidgen. He gets a smidgen. I mean, the <laughs> speech he gave on the floor uh, was the right speech to give. And, um, you know, for many of us who have pain, watched, you know, in agony over the failure of Mitch McConnell to stand up to Donald Trump time after time after time when he was lying about things, and especially on things like executive power and taking away the power of Congress to appropriate funds. I mean, the way the president stole money from the military to build the wall was breathtaking. For someone who had watched the righteous indignation of the Republican senators about the unbelievable executive overreach of Barack Obama, um, watching them all fold like cheap shotguns to Trump's, you know, blurring of the line of the checks and balances that are contained within our Constitution was horrible. But he did do the right thing when it came to certifying the election. And I guess I got to... I got to give a slight nod to him for that. Everyone has, everyone has some line. Now, so let me ask you about one, one more person uh, who was chanted about by a subset of the rioters at the Capitol who went there, and we've seen the videos, they're chanting, hang Mike Pence. This is the loyal vice president to the, uh, to the president, to Donald Trump, 
who arguably himself drew some line at the end and give a speech. Where do you place him? Uh, I think he will be, a, you know, an asterisk in this chapter. I, I don't see him emerging in a strong role in the future. I don't think he's seen as strong. I don't think Trump would ever allow him to be seen as strong. I think he's seen as his shadow of Donald Trump. And then with the hardcore Trumpers, he is now a traitor. So I don't know where his his niche is in the new Republican Party. Um, you know, does he somehow take on the mantle of institutional Republicans that believe in fiscal restraint and small government and limited executive power like the old days in states' rights? Or is he a new version of the Trump mantra of me, 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 and a little bit of populism and anti-free trade? Uh, you know, I don't think America has any idea what Mike Pence stands for other than very, very conservative in, on social issues such as LGBTQ rights and, you know, abortion. Uh, so I, 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 I think he, I assume that if he, if Trump were to resign, he wouldn't give Trump a pardon now. I don't think so. Maybe I shouldn't assume that. I think that ship has sailed, which is another reason why he won't. But can we pause to marvel at the latest example of how much influence Trump has over his base? And we've seen it again and again and again. And some people call it a cult because there's, you know, cultish behavior. But to me, the most remarkable example is this incident that we're talking about, where Mike Pence is the loyal number two, never speaks ill of Trump. There have been some reporting uh, that your former colleagues you know, to each other would joke about President Trump and about his, you know, flaws, et cetera. But they wouldn't do it around Mike Pence because Mike Pence wouldn't tolerate it. So here's a person who's been as loyal as anyone, never upstaged the president, and on a dime, because he won't do this crazy thing and give the election unlawfully and unconstitutionally to the president, not only does the base turn on him, but some of them talk about hanging him in public. I mean, have you ever seen any... any politician ever in your lifetime or read about who has that kind of, you know, flip on a dime influence with their base? No. Um, and I think it's a complicated explanation as to why. Um, I think it starts that Trump understood grievance better than most American politicians. He has no empathy, but he understands grievance. And he understood that there was a wide swath of people out there that were sure that the only reason they couldn't afford to retire and the only reason they couldn't afford to take a vacation or send their kids to college was because of Mexicans or Muslims or brown-skinned or black-skinned people or women's rights. And he um, tapped into that grievance, which obviously at some level has racist undertones. And he wrote it. And the more the, the, the system fought Trump, the stronger that bound him to those folks. The more, you know, when Hillary called them deplorables, that was the first step of, yeah, well, we'll show you deplorable. And at, at every step along the way, the more the institutions rejected Trump's way in horror, uh, the more those folks decided he was their guy. And that was augmented extensively by the way we get our information now. Uh, you know, it, it, I remember, Preet, I'm much older than you are, but I remember when I was a child, my parents would turn on either Huntley and Brinkley or Walter Cronkite. And we would watch in, in Missouri, the evening news came on at six o'clock. We would watch the evening news at six o'clock. And as soon as it was over, we'd turn off the TV and sit down and eat dinner. And we'd talk about what was going on in the world or in our community or whatever at the dinner table. Well, now people can go wherever they want to get affirmation and sometimes fanciful theories that feed their grievances. And the fact that we can't get to one place and determine what's true, the elusive facts of modern communication is really allowing this kind of behavior to flourish. And it's a problem our democracy is going to continue to grapple with. 
So let's talk about the culpability of Donald Trump because that's what people are talking about. They invoke the 25th Amendment or talk about it. Impeachment, the D.C. Attorney General is talking about a statute that maybe Trump violated. Maybe a future Justice Department can look at Donald Trump. What should happen to him? How should he be held accountable in a way that's most consistent with our laws and democracy? It's a tough question, you know, and you and I have something in common. Um, I, you know, I will tease you and say I was a real prosecutor and not a Fed. <laughs> I spent years uh, handling way more felonies than any person should ever have in terms of a caseload in a, the state prosecution systems in Missouri. And I think this is a very tough question because we do not want to make Donald Trump a martyr. Um, and I think we, but we also want to hold him accountable. Uh, I think him being impeached again, I think probably on Wednesday, I believe he'll be impeached by the house and I believe it will come to the Senate and I do not believe they will convict him. Although I think there'll be more votes for it than there were the first time, um, on the Republican side. And then the question is what, how is he held accountable? I, I think it's hard to, to do things. I would like to see, frankly, him be prosecuted for his financial crimes. Cause I think it takes it out of the somewhat of the realm of he's being persecuted for his politics, which is what his base is going to see if it's all about him encouraging them to fight the result of the election. Um, so I, I am, I'm, I know this, I know that Donald Trump lied on financial documents. I know it as sure as the sun comes up in the morning. And I know that the federal government has all kinds of ways to get to people who lie on financial documents when those lies are relied on by financial institutions or the IRS. Uh, the cleanest way to get at Donald Trump is to continue to isolate him in terms of his businesses and to prosecute him for crimes he committed in association with his finances, I think. But I could, I could be talked out of that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not talking you out of it. But on this thing that's now got a lot of momentum in the House, you're supportive of impeachment. Yeah, I think he should be impeached. Yeah. And so now when it goes to the Senate, you know, the timing is kind of awkward here, right? And I'm wondering how you think about your friend Joe Biden and what he should be wishing for. Because on the one hand, boy, uh, you know, accountability is incredibly important. I happen to think it's important, if it's possible, to convict the president and also have a vote on disqualifying him for, from holding future office. But that takes time if you're going to have a fair process that will be respected by people of, of good faith in the country. Meanwhile, it's going to be the first hundred days of Joe Biden's presidency, and he's got COVID to deal with, and he's got a cabinet to appoint. You know, is, is, what's going on in his head? And if you were Joe Biden, what would you be advocating for? I think it's hard for him. I think he has done a very good job of staying above all of this as he has prepared to enter the presidency. And I think he'll continue to do that. I think he'll be respectful of the Senate um, deciding what process they want to go forward with. And if it's an impeachment trial, I think he'll be respectful of that. But I think Chuck will work with him to try to figure out a way to devote part of every day to what he needs to be getting done, whether it's confirmation of his cabinet or whether it's the COVID uh, relief that he wants to get across the finish line, particularly in terms of the massive vaccination prog program that he wants to embrace. So I could see the, the mornings being devoted to Biden and the afternoon being uh, an impeachment trial, but with Biden really focusing on the morning activities and allowing the Senate to do its bidding in the afternoon and him keeping a distance in order for the country to see him as someone who is working on their behalf rather than punishing Trump. What do you think about this idea of having the impeachment vote in the House and then the House delaying some weeks, 50, 100 days before sending to the Senate so that Biden has some running room? Do you think people have the appetite to return to the issue of Donald Trump sometime later? I think it's harder if you wait. I think it's harder because I think right now, the American people, I mean, the majority of the American people right now, albeit a slim majority, but still the majority, a lot more of percentage of the people than voted for Donald Trump, 
um, want him removed from office. So I, I think right now they have the political winds at their back. So I think this is a decision that's going to have to be made by the president-elect and by the leaders in Congress. And some of that, I hope, will be in consultation with at least Mitch McConnell. I mean, I think Kevin McCarthy is kind of a lost cause. He's, you know, he's such a Trump tool. I, <laughs> I don't know that he should be even allowed in the room with the adults, but I guess they have to to some extent. But I would assume Pelosi and Schumer and Biden are going to be the ones trying to suss this out and figure out the best way forward that protects Biden's ability to capitalize on what we all consider the first hundred days, which, you know, typically is a honeymoon period for a new president. Hear more of my conversation with former Senator Claire McCaskill after this. So it's going to be a very divided Senate, your former body. Who, who is the majority leader going to be, Chuck Schumer or Joe Manchin? Oh, it won't be Joe Manchin. I think Joe, <laughs> God love him. He's my dear buddy, but he... To make clear, that was a joke, Senator Schumer. Um. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but Joe <laughs> loves the idea that everyone's talking about him as the kingmaker and the power maker. Keep in mind, there are a lot of senators who come from red states. Uh, and you've got two senators from Arizona that are the first two Democrats elected in their states in decades. And they are up in 2022. Well, certainly Mark is, Kelly. Um, so you've got, they're going to want to chart an independent course. Uh, you've got John Tester from a very red state. You've got Sherrod Brown, who is going to want to um, try to lay groundwork to make it more difficult for Rob Portman to get reelected in 2022. So there are going to be, uh, and then you've got, you know, the moderate Republicans who are going to want to legislate again, that are going to want to be part of something, whether it's, you know, Lisa Murkowski, who's also up, I think, in 2022, and Susan Collins, and, you know, and and Lisa Murkowski's made noises about leaving the Republican Party. So yeah. there'll be a lot of Democrats trying to woo her over to caucus with the Democrats. I don't know that that would be possible. I think she would probably continue to caucus with Republicans, although she's technically a, ran as an independent last time. Um, so there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be willing to kind of be in the middle. So what's that going to look like? Will there be some you know, gang of four or six or eight on certain kinds of issues that, you know, try to chart a, a, a moderate course? Is is Chuck Schumer going to have to count votes like crazy every single time? Is, is Joe Biden going to have to abandon some of his goals? Like, what's that going to look like? Well, if, if, first of all, remember, right now, there are only a few things that a majority vote controls. Um, Chuck Schumer will control what comes on the Senate floor, which is a massive power. Uh, to determine what is voted on. That Chuck Schumer gets to decide. And they have a couple of shots at reconciliation, which is too boring to explain, but it is basically a process within the budget that allows them to have a majority vote on big ticket items that cost money. He's got a couple of shots at that. And he's got the cabinet and judges, which are a majority vote. But the rest of it is still 60 and so it's not a matter of counting one or two votes. It's not a matter of whether Joe Manchin is with you or against you. It's a matter of can you get 10 or 9? It has to be at least 10 because, you know, Kamala, the vice president won't be voting if it's not a tie. So it, 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 it still is going to be um, what it used to be in the Senate back when we used to legislate. How do you find the sweet spot where you can get a lot of people together that will vote for something. And, you know, we used to do it with some regularity. Um, and I think they can do it on infrastructure if they start using the committees the way they're designed to be used instead of just writing everything in the majority leader's office. And you think there are Republicans who are prepared to come to the table and legislate and compromise and give Joe Biden what they seem never to want to give Barack Obama, and that is achievements? Yeah, I think you forget that there were Republicans that voted and we did do things to get things done uh, during the years of Barack Obama. Um, yes, the health care at one point in time was passed by 60. Believe it or not, we had 60 Democrats for one brief shining moment. <laughs> right. And then it was reconciliation in terms of the follow on bill as it related to the ACA. But there was a, there were a lot of other things. You know, we had Republican votes on the stimulus. 
Um, we had, you know, Republican votes on um, bailing out the auto industry. We had Republican votes on many things. And that, that's still possible. You know, I, you know, will we, will, will it be as possible post Trump as it was before Trump? I don't know. But I think that there is a pent up demand in the Senate to actually legislate. And probably a pent up demand on the part of the public, right? Yeah. I haven't seen that in a while. But some things, uh, let me mention a few, the prospects uh, of them were debated hotly before the election. Expanding the court, that's not going to happen, right? That's not going to happen. D.C. statehood? Um, I don't think that's going to happen. $2,000 stimulus checks? Well, it would be probably $1,400 minus the $600 they did. Right, right. I think that will happen. What about, without being specific... Do you think we have prospects for substantial criminal justice reform? Uh, I think that's definitely possible. Um, now, substantial is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> right. Um, you know, but I think there are things we now know about the criminal justice system that we can continue to fix. You know, and that has been a bipartisan effort. Uh, I think that it's even possible we could get some bipartisan uh, work done. We got 60 some votes for immigration reform and most of those Republicans have voted for it. Not all of them, but a bunch of them are still there. So I remember, you know, big push for immigration reform with a Democratic Congress and a Republican president, George W. Bush, in favor back in 06, 07. And it couldn't get done then. It might, I guess my, I don't mean to be overly pessimistic, but but how much damage has Donald Trump done in setting back the clock unreasonable proposals for immigration and attitudes towards immigrants, I, I feel like he's taken the, us back a ways and inflamed people's passions against immigrants in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. You think we can overcome that? I think we can. Um, it's not the majority of America that views immigration the way Donald Trump clearly did. I, I think that the immigration reform that's possible is not going to be what you or I would like to see. But I think it's definitely possible that we could finally get the Dreamers. I mean, remember, we passed the Dreamer legislation in the Senate, and it was killed in the Republican-held House. So um, I think it's possible that we could get get the Dreamer the Dreamer program codified, um, and there might be a path to citizenship that has way too many hurdles for many of us, but it yeah. may take that many hurdles in order to get it passed, and that probably is better than leaving the status quo. Um, and and some of this is going to be getting used to the idea of what is possible that we can accomplish towards the values that we hold in the Democratic Party and not getting impatient that we can't get it all because um, our country is very evenly divided and therefore compromise. Um, it's, this is not unusual in American history. Uh, in fact, our founding fathers wanted compromise. That's why they designed the Constitution the way they did. I mean, in most democracies, whoever wins the, con- the legislative elections controls the executive branch. No, not in the United States. Um, those are separate decisions that people make. And so the fact that you have all three branches controlled by Democrats now, but just barely means that <laughs> just barely. we shouldn't, we shouldn't make compromise a dirty word. So how's that going to work? I understand compromise as between Democrats and Republicans, and you can sort of think about that dynamic and there's a lot of precedent for that. There's also precedent for the following, you know, it, it seems like the democratic party is the bigger tent. And the Republican Party, you have a lot of people who've left it because it's nothing other than seemingly adoration for Donald Trump. But you have people on the left in the Democratic Party who are getting elected uh, in the House, especially. And there are more moderate figures. And then you have you know, Joe Biden, who I think is even referred to himself as kind of a bridge to the future. H- how are those battles going to play out and, and by what tactics? I think it remains to be seen. Um, yeah. We were able to defeat Donald Trump because we stayed unified as a party. And I give a lot of cr- credit to the progressive wing of the Democratic Party for, uh, you know, Bernie and Elizabeth and 
AOC and all the people that support her all going all in for Joe Biden. That was essential for us in terms of turning Donald Trump out of office. Now we've got to remember that we can't start the kind of fights that they now have in the Republican Party. I mean, there's a real schism in the Republican Party right now between people who believe in uh, some kind of fiscal restraint and states' rights and free trade and all of the things that were the mainstays of the Republican Party versus uh, the Trump Party. We don't need to fight each other. We can disagree with each other, but uh, I think it's important not to be critical of each other and try to figure out all those things we agree on that we need to move because there's a bunch of them that we agree on uh, without getting upset that it's not going as far and as fast as some in the party would want. How would you describe uh, Harry Reid as majority leader? What kind of leader was he? Harry, um, old school. Right. Inside baseball. Um, Harry, I'm not speaking out of school. And if Harry hears this, I know he'll smile. This is not the most telegenic guy in the world. <laughs> He's, he says that himself. Yeah. I mean, an interview with Harry Reid um, is painful, um, if, especially if it's on TV. <laughs> um, he had a spine of steel, soft-spoken, but a spine of steel, uh, fearless, uh, understood that he was only as strong as his members allowed him to be. Ultimately, I think the challenge for Chuck Schumer is going to be, you know, Harry and Mitch quit talking, and I don't think that Chuck and Mitch have talked a lot in the Trump years, but maybe more than Harry and Mitch talked. Harry had finally just had enough of Mitch, and that's when he made the move to blow up the filibuster as it related to judicial nominations. And uh, in in the heat of the Kavanaugh confirmation battle, words of some in our caucus that said at the time, we will rue the day we did this, kind of echoed in the hallways. Because uh, Kavanaugh never would have been nominated, much less confirmed if we had required 60 votes. There's that old joke that I think President Obama made at one of those dinners where he said, some people, you know, their advice to me is, you know, for people to get along and for there to be bipartisanship. Why don't you get a drink with Mitch McConnell, they ask. Really? (laughs) Why don't you get a drink with Mitch McConnell? Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) Just, Just since you mentioned McConnell, what do you make of these members of the cabinet, including McConnell's wife, Elaine Chow, who resigned as transportation secretary with just le- days left in the term. Do you give them do you give them a smidge? Do they get any credit? I don't know. It's hard. <laughs> you know, how do you go to work for a guy like that? Um, somebody who's such a liar. I mean, he's such a liar. And they all knew it when they took the jobs. I, I, I can't give them much credit. I mean, frankly, the cynical part of me thinks they did it because they were afraid they were going to have to vote on the 25th Amendment. Yeah, that's what some people have said. Do you miss the Senate? I don't. Um, You don't? I really don't. Um, I miss my friends. I work hard at trying to stay in touch with many of them. Um, You know, I feel like I landed in a tub of butter. I mean, you understand pretty... (laughs) Is that a good thing? Yeah, most of the people on, on Capitol Hill don't know the pleasure of laboring politically in a state that's hard. The vast majority of people elected to Congress come from safe places. The only thing they have to worry about is primaries. It's a completely different endeavor when you are constantly looking over your shoulder, knowing that there's never going to be an election that's comfortable. So um, I'm glad to be done with that part of my life. I feel like, you know, I can't believe that somebody is paying me to mouth off. Well, and to say exactly what I think. Tell me about it. It's <laughs> tell unbelievable. Me about it, Senator. <laughs> I mean, it really is unbelievable. And I get to control my own schedule. And I, you know, I, my, I have 12 grandchildren, but my daughter uh, will have her first child uh, in 2021. And in the old days, I would be beside myself wondering if I would, could be there for the birth. Congratulations. And um, I'm going to be able to be there 
for the birth of my uh, 13th grandchild. And I know I'll be there because I can control my schedule. And I, I have no desire to go back to D.C. I really do not miss the Senate. You know, what you said a minute ago about being in a tough state politically. So do you take umbrage and get annoyed? I'm sure you do. When you get lectured by people from safe districts on the left. Yeah. Saying, yeah. So explain a little bit of your annoyance about that. Well, you know, first of all, I can see the annoyance if I had a bad voting record on issues they cared about. But if you look at my voting record, I mean, I, I proudly wore an F in the NRA for my entire political career in a state that is a very big gun state. I proudly uh, had the endorsement of Planned Parenthood in every one of my races, even though I'm from a state that more Republicans before Trump identified as evangelical than Republican and very strong um, anti-choice state. So, you know, and there's just a whole lot of issues that I had a really strong progressive record on, but I didn't talk about those issues as it, it front and center in my campaigns. And what was really frustrating is when the progressives would say, well, if you just talk about those issues more, more progressive would come out and vote for you and you'd win. No, no, that's not true. <laughs> there aren't enough progressives in Missouri. Um, to make those issues the center point of your campaign. So it was frustrating when some people um, would complain that I wasn't talking about women's reproductive rights often enough in the campaign. Um, All they had to do was look at my record. So in that vein, then, Georgia is not Missouri. You know, all our states are different. But, you know, you had two people win in Georgia who did not run like Sam Nunn or like moderates. You know, they're there are two real liberals. And is that a function of the state of Georgia and its demographics changing? Or does it provide some ammunition to the folks who say the things we were just talking about? That, you know, it's possible for progressives who, who run on progressivism to win in tough states like Georgia and Missouri. I, I Listen, um, Georgia is a much easier state than Missouri. Um, Georgia, I think, supported Trump in his first election by six points and Missouri did by 20. Yeah. And it is a more diverse state. It is a growing state in terms of diversity. So it's a different state, number one. Number two, uh, you have to walk the line between motivating your base, making sure your base knows that you will vote on the things they care about in the right way, whether it's climate or other issues. And then finally, there's Donald Trump. And um, Donald Trump, I think what he did particularly as it relates to Georgia was political malpractice. I think Georgia could have gone either way. I think Trump helped us deliver it. Not just, I mean, believe me, there were lots of black women who helped and Stacey Abrams, who was, you know, just amazing and all. But Donald Trump really did some stupid stuff the last three weeks in yeah. terms of going after the Republican officials in Georgia and, you know, making it seem like that there really wasn't a safe way to vote in Georgia. So those three things kind of were a perfect storm for the Democrats in Georgia in that election. Now, that's not to say that Georgia's not going to continue to get bluer. I think Texas is on the same path. Um, Missouri... Yeah, like, like Virginia was some years ago. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. wasn't that long ago that Virginia was pretty reliable. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so it remains whole country? to be seen if places like Arkansas and Missouri and Oklahoma uh, can enjoy that kind of, you know, shift, demographic shift. Missouri's not growing, and it's particularly not growing like it should in our urban areas. Thinking about the country as, as a whole, maybe you don't do that. Maybe you have to think about states individually since we still have the electoral college system. But do you think as a whole, the country is shifting left of center? or holding, or it's a pendulum? What do you think? I I think it's very hard to judge right now because so much of this is wrapped up in the personality of Donald Trump. I think we are a center nation. Whether we're center right or center left, I think depends on who's in office. And, you know, there are really significant numbers of swing voters. I mean, I would never have gotten elected to anything. In statewide in Missouri, if it weren't for swing voters, right? So um, 
And some of that is a reaction. I mean, when I got elected in 2006, I defeated an incumbent U.S. senator. That was on the heels of George Bush and the Iraq War. But things had changed significantly by 2008 and 2010 and 2012. So some of it depends on who's in power, and some of it depends on whether or not the personality of Donald Trump will continue to galvanize people, both for the Democrats and against the Democrats. Did you have to be persuaded to run for Senate in 2006? Oh, yeah. I just lost the governor's race. I I defeated an incumbent Democratic governor, which is in the primary. Yeah, very you primary unusual. the Democrat senator. What were you? What were you thinking? Yeah, very unusual thing to happen in politics. So I, I, I positively defeated, AOC of you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I defeated the incumbent governor in the primary and then lost in the general uh, to Roy Blunt's son. And then I was really not in the mood to run again, um, and uh, I was talked into it by uh, both. Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer get, likes to take all the credit, but my husband did some of it. <laughs> my husband kind of took my hand and said, you know, and by the way, which was brave of him because all they ever do is beat up my husband when I run. Um, he, he took my hand and said, hey, you know, you're good at this. Your country needs you, you know, get out there and do it. You can win this race. And so. Um, well, I will tell you, you know, I started working for Senator Schumer in the beginning of 05. I mean, I was on the legislative side, but I would overhear conversations he would have with others, including Harry Reid, about recruiting candidates for 2006. And since it's just you and me talking right now, I will tell you that Senator Schumer would frequently say that you were his favorite recruit for 2006. (laughs) (laughs) He would get off the phone with you sometimes and he was just radiant. He was was really thrilled. Yeah, listen, we we are very close friends and we still talk uh, all the time. He will proudly tell you he can he, ask him what my phone number is and he will, <laughs> he will trip off his tongue like clockwork. He, he and I, in fact, we just talked last night. So, uh, we're close friends and he, you know, he all t- since we, just the two of us talking, just the two of us, I will tell you this. I like Iris better than I like him. <laughs> well, I should tell you, it's just the two of us talking right now, you know, hundreds of millions of people are going to hear this, but I think Chuck would not uh, be upset. Be upset. <laughs> did, you, did you give him any advice? Uh, you know, I mean, from time to time, I give him advice. And usually it's when he asks, but sometimes I, I call him when he hasn't asked and say, what, what, what's going on and why are you doing it this way? Um, he's, it, it's, if you work for him, you know, he usually has a very strong mind about the right way to get things done, but, um, but he's very open-minded. I mean, the he best is thing about working for him, and he will listen. There's a story that staffers would tell. They all told me this before I started working for him and to give me a, a sense of what it's like. And it's not all, you know, roses. Cause he's a very tough boss. He works harder than anybody on his staff. And the chief of staff once told me, you know, he was, he was yelling into the phone and there were expletives, et cetera. And I think he was around his parents and he gets off the phone. His parents said, who was that? Who are you yelling at? I said, that was Senator Schumer. <laughs> I said, you can talk to him like that. And the truth is you can. He liked, you know, a lot, you can never talk to Arlen. No staffer who ever talked that way to Arlen Specter ever lived to the next birthday, I think. Right, that's but, correct. But Chuck Schumer, he loves debate and he loves argument and he will yell at you and you can yell at him. There's a, there's a, there's a famous moment, I forget who the staffer was, and all the staff was arrayed against Senator Schumer on some issue. And he was being very obstinate about it. And, you know, he knows more about most things than, than everyone else when it comes to Senate matters. And the staffer finally won the day by saying, you know, Chuck, you may be smarter than all of us individually, but you're not smarter than all of us collectively, <laughs> which caused him to laugh and I think change his mind. Is there, is there a favorite political race that you think about in your experience? That I participated in or yes, one yes, that I'm that looking you, forward to? One that you were in. Um, I mean, probably the most fun for me was the Todd Aiken race because it was, you know, we were able to do some jujitsu moves to get the opponent we wanted. And it, it so that was, was 2012, high, you're running for re-election. Yeah, re-elect in 12. And there were three, uh, credible Republican opponents running. And one of them I knew was my best shot of winning. And so I, uh, along with my team, I directed a strategy to help him. And uh, it worked. 
and we got him. And that was, I knew he would, he was very sincere in his beliefs and had no filter. And I knew he would say something. Yes. Yeah, so he said something. Race that would, he said something very famous. And he said something very famous. Uh, want to remind want to remind folks what the subject was and what he yeah, said. Yeah, he he said that um, the chapter in my book is called "The Magic Vagina" because what he said was <laughs> that uh, women who are raped have a, a way of shutting that whole thing down, uh, basically spewing nonsense that somehow if a woman was really raped, she couldn't get pregnant. Therefore, there was no problem. Uh, outlawing abortions for even women who were raped. So um, that obviously, that was pre-Trump and pretty um, uh, outrageous thing to say in those days. And we were able to use that. And he was, the Republican Party distanced itself from Todd Akin, if you can imagine such a thing. And the fact that they distanced themselves from him uh, really was what we needed in Missouri, and we won a, a big, big victory in 12. It was the only race I ever had, really, that wasn't close. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he, he referred, he used the phrase legitimate rape, didn't he? Yeah, if it's a legitimate rape. <laughs> legitimate rape. The, if it's a legitimate rape, rape, the woman's body has a way of shutting that whole thing down. And that was too much for the voters in Missouri. That was, that was too much for the Republican Party and, and for the voters in Missouri. Uh, now, I don't think it would be too much for the Republican Party now, which is something. What did you like being being more an elected official or prosecutor? Which do I like more? Which a prosecutor, elected official? Oh boy, that's a tough question. I loved being a prosecutor. How come? Uh, well, I I I I am somebody who really. Um, the only thing that, that hearings were fun for me is it was the only chance I had to even come close to a cross-examination. If you are a, especially if you're a state prosecutor and, you know, remember the FBI, for everyone who's listening, doesn't answer 911 calls. They decide what cases they're going to take and the state prosecutors take everything else. And so if you are in a busy urban DA's office, you are in the courtroom all the time. You are trying jury trial after jury trial after jury trial. And it is an amazing experience to be part of a jury trial. And I, um, I loved that part of my work. Uh, the collegiality of the prosecutor's office, the, the ability to help victims, uh, the ability. We did a lot of groundbreaking things. We started one of the first drug courts in the country when I was the elected DA in Kansas City. I started a domestic violence unit, which had never been done before. We uh, did community, not just community policing, we did community prosecution. So we did, and we had a drug tax where we not only funded uh, additional police officers, but we also funded drug treatment. So I was very busy in a holistic way looking at the drug problem as a public health problem. So it was exciting, it was meaningful, and it was a terrific job. Now, you know, the U.S. Senate was pretty darn good, too. So I would say it was a great bookend for my career. Senator Claire McCaskill, thanks for spending the time. It was a real treat. Thank you very much, Preet. My conversation with Claire McCaskill continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So I want to end the show this week with a brief word about the Justice Department, where I spent most of my adult career. We on the show and on the Cafe Insider podcast spent some time criticizing, you might say, actions of the Department of Justice, I think with good reason and with good cause. I think there has been an erosion of independence. I think there's been a, an erosion of accountability. And I don't need to rehash all those things now, but it's been unfortunate to see, and it's been sad to see. In a few days, Joe Biden will take over the presidency. And as a consequence of that, he will install new leadership at the top of the department. Joe Biden's nominee to be the attorney general is Merrick Garland, veteran of the Justice Department, long-serving D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals judge. I've met him a few times. I don't know him well. He has an outstanding reputation for integrity and for honor and for intelligence and for understanding the law and being loyal to the law. And I think the combination of 
his understanding, Merrick Garland's understanding of the independent function of the Justice Department with Joe Biden's statement and understanding and commitment to the independence of the Justice Department bodes very well for the next four years. But, but Merrick Garland is not going to be doing that job alone, no matter how good he is. And it's been a while since he's been at the Justice Department. And as both a professional and a personal matter, I wanted to mention for those of you who may not have realized it, that he has an amazing team coming in. The number two person at the Justice Department, the Deputy Attorney General, will be Lisa Monaco. The number three person at the Justice Department, the Associate Attorney General, will be Vanita Gupta. Those of you who have followed me for a while know that these are two of my closest friends. And they're not only friends of mine, they're friends of this podcast. My very first guest, three and a half years ago, on Stay Tuned with Preet, was former CIA Director and Defense Secretary Leon Panetta. But my second guest, my second ever guest, was Vanita Gupta. My third ever guest was Lisa Monaco. Both of them have been on the show many times. Both of them have been a resource for me when I think about how to describe things with any kind of intelligence. And most recently, Lisa Monaco was co-hosting a podcast for us for CAFE, United Security, with Ken Weinstein. She will obviously not be able to continue her co-hosting obligations and duties when she's basically running a department of 110,000 employees. But believe it or not, their stay-tuned experience is not their greatest qualification for these important jobs. Lisa spent 15 years at the Justice Department in every kind of role as an advisor to Janet Reno back in the day, as an assistant U.S. attorney in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, as a staff member to the Deputy Attorney General in the Obama administration, as the first woman to head the National Security Division of the Justice Department, and then she later became the counterterrorism advisor to Barack Obama. And Vanita Gupta, for her part, has been a lifelong champion of civil rights at various places, including the ACLU, and most recently, as the head of the Leadership Conference for Civil and Human Rights. But in between those things, she was the head of the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. And criminal justice reform, along with civil rights advocacy, is, I think, one of the most important priorities that the department should put before it. In all sorts of matters we had at the Southern District, and obviously that U.S. attorneys had around the country, Vanita was a leader in making sure we got things done and making sure we set things right. For my part, a lot of the work that we did at Rikers Island was enabled by Vanita helping us out and giving us the resources and approvals that we needed. So that was a pleasure. It will not come as a surprise to everyone that when I was the United States Attorney in SDNY, we sometimes had issues with the folks in Washington, the folks at headquarters. But as Lisa and Vanita know, because I told them this in real time, my two favorite people at Maine Justice in Washington when I served were none other than Lisa Monaco and Vanita Gupta. They're not just smart people, they're great people, they're ethical people, they know how to get things done, and if I can use the word, they're both badasses. The department is lucky to have them, and the country is lucky to have them. And I wish them great luck and great success, because there's a lot of work to be done. Congratulations. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Claire McCaskill. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669 247 7338. That's 669-247-PREET. Or you can send an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tadashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.